You're listening to One Decision, the podcast that looks at how singular choices can shape our world. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. We're coming up to the one-year anniversary of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which he launched on February 24th last year. He may have intended it to be a military operation lasting just a matter of days, but he and much of the rest of the world vastly underestimated the ferocity of the Ukrainian people, their desire to defend their homeland, and indeed the resolve of their leader, Volodymyr Zelensky. In recent weeks, the Ukrainian leadership has warned that they believe Moscow is gearing up for a concerted and deadly push this month to coincide with the one-year anniversary of the war. A slight mangling of the reality on the ground, given that Russian forces actually invaded all the way back in 2014, when Putin annexed Crimea by force. Perhaps cognizant of the growing threat of a possible Russian military resurgence, Zelensky landed in the British capital of London on a surprise diplomatic blitz to give a historic address to the Houses of Parliament, before heading to the palace for an audience with King Charles. It's now emerged he'll be touring European capitals, including Paris, to give a renewed push for advanced weapons, including, most importantly, fighter jets to stave off what the Ukrainians clearly feel is an impending and renewed Russian onslaught. My co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, is the former chief of Britain's MI6. So when the news broke that Zelensky was in the capital, I rang him to hear what he thought. Richard, we woke up yesterday morning to surprise reports that President Zelensky was in the air and due to land in London for his first trip to the UK since the invasion of his country uh, on 24th of February last year. I mean, clearly it was a very tightly controlled trip. The broadcasters only getting a heads up. It was even happening very, very early in the morning. So one imagines that there was uh, this was something that involved a lot of security and risk planning. Uh, Zelensky talked about the British and Ukrainian friendship and the UK's very strong support from day one of the invasion. He name-checked the former Prime Minister Boris, who was also there in Westminster Hall for his historic speech. And uh, Zelensky also gave thanks to current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. And he announced that he was off to see King Charles. Uh, Richard, Zelensky made a historic address to both Houses of Parliament last March in 2022, but it was done via video link. And then we saw later in the year, in December last year, another surprise visit to Washington, D.C. Uh, with Zelensky taking the floor in Congress to address both houses of the US there. Uh, Was it inevitable that he was going to make a similar trip to here in London, given that the UK has been among Ukraine's biggest supporters during this conflict? Yeah, I think the symbolism is potent. And in a way, you could almost say the visit is overdue. Um, the planning and the security, of course, there would be no indication ahead of time, but we're just coming up, you know, to the anniversary of the invasion. Uh, The UK has been the most important of his European allies and supporters. And uh, I think this was almost to be anticipated or expected, even if we didn't know the precise details. So I think uh, as an act of, you know, symbolism, really, Uh, it's all about the symbolism much more than the content. And in a way, here's Zelensky saying to the UK, you've taken the lead, 
in Europe. You've been my most important ally. Your support is precious. And of course, he uses this moment of political theater almost to put in a massively powerful emotional plea for the next kit they require. Having got the tanks, they now want the airplane. It's extraordinary watching an event or hearing an event like this because I was, I was listening to it rather than actually seeing it live because I'm in a place where that wouldn't be possible. Um, you know, he, 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 his theatre training, his ability to dramatise the delivery, the timing, the intonation, uh, this sort of thick Ukrainian accent, which actually is very attractive in the way that he makes his deliveries. And my goodness me, he sounds very Churchillian in, uh, in his rather gruff, um, pause delivery. Uh, it's impressive stuff. Uh, it's very impressive stuff. And of course, it must leave Putin absolutely quaking because, you know, Putin as a public figure doesn't have, you know, has a minus charisma, um, whereas uh, Zelensky has almost infinite reserves of it. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. He really leaned hard into the Churchill comparisons. And in his speech, he talked about in his last trip to the UK, he went on a visit to the Churchill war rooms. And he said that the guide offered offered for him to sit in the chair where Churchill gave a lot of his orders and asked him how he felt. And he used that anecdote to pay tribute to the bravery that it that it must have taken Churchill at that time and, and, the, and the bravery being shown by Ukrainian troops. It was an incredibly emotionally charged speech and he had a very receptive audience in Westminster Hall who, who gave him extremely strong applause during that. I mean, I wanted to ask you also, you mentioned the timing of this visit. We've seen reports recently, including one from the Financial Times uh, this week, referencing an unnamed advisor to the Ukrainian armed forces that Kyiv has apparently obtained very solid intelligence of intent by Russia to launch a concerted new attack, likely aiming to capture the entire Donbass region in, in the east, which is very heavily contested at the moment. The FT going on to report that Moscow is most likely hoping to launch the offensive before Ukraine receives Western tanks and weapons um, in the latest round of promised aid to Ukraine, and that this attack by the Russians was likely to be spearheaded by elite units. I mean, Richard, that would make a lot of sense to me, because something else that we've heard recently is reports, I've heard this quite a few times, from a number of media outlets quoting Ukrainian leaders on the battlefield, who many of whom have noted that many that much of Russia's top forces have been absent from the front lines in recent months. And there's been a lot of speculation that maybe these special forces have been resting, refreshing, retraining in preparation for something like a renewed concerted push. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think in a way, what that's predicting is to be expected. The Russians must be concerned about the increasing sophistication of the armaments being supplied to the Ukrainians. And the logic would be to get an offensive in before the Ukrainians are fully re-equipped, before they're fully trained, before they're fully resupplied. But a, a report like that 
I would also treat with caution. The reason being that I think that Ukrainians have become masterly at um, manipulating the media coverage of the war to an extent. Um, and for example, their last offensive, they let everyone believe that they were going to do it in the south. And, you know, they did it along a different part of the border. And generally speaking, you know, there was a deception plan. So, I mean, I think one's got to think pretty carefully about what the Ukrainians are up to. I would not take a report like that at face value. There's obviously a, the fighting season is coming up, the spring, the weather will change, um, and we'll see developments. I think it's, it's difficult to predict how these play out. I think one crucial thing for the U Ukrainians, and in a way Zelensky indirectly referred to that, would be, as they're armed with more sophisticated, longer-range artillery and missiles, they can take out Russian logistics behind the lines. And I think one has to bear in mind that war fighting, huge amount of it is about logistics and resupply. And what we've seen is the Russians hitherto have been pretty bad, if not appallingly bad, at this aspect of warfare. And do we expect it to get better? I doubt it. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's one area where the Russians are totally on their own. They're not getting any assistance from countries the way the Ukrainians are in, in training troops in things like battlefield logistics and, and, and some of these areas in which they are weakest. You know, they can buy discounted drones from the Iranians. You know, they can do that sort of stuff. But they, they really are on their own out here. And it was something that Zelensky made reference to time and time and time again. He said uh, quite a few times in a speech that the Ukrainians were fighting a war on behalf of the international community and the rules-based international order. And he paid a lot of tribute to this sort of league of friendship uh, led by the United States uh, and allies like the UK in in supporting Kyiv respond to this invasion from day one? Yeah, I mean, what's, it's extraordinary what's happening. Um, you know, European security is changing in front of our eyes, and the Ukrainians are making themselves into the most effective army on the European continent. And you know, this poses all sorts of questions for the future as to what sort of alliance are the Ukrainians going to be embraced into? Um, you know, what is going to happen to Russia? I, I mean, I think we already know that Putin's decision to go to war was a total disaster for Russia. Um, and, you know, whatever happens now, he's not really going to be able to significantly improve the consequences of the decision that he took. So I think we're on the cusp of a really important moment, I think, which uh, will dictate in future how we think and how we talk about European security, whether it's NATO, whether the European Commission, whether Brussels is going to ever play any role whatsoever. Uh, all these questions are posed. Uh, you can't now think about the future of Europe except in the context of this war and the way it's being played out. And I thought what was extraordinary about uh, the speech that he's just given is the sense of history. Uh, you know, this was not, it was a tactical speech in terms of the demands, the immediate demands the Ukrainians are still making, 
but he set it in the context of you know historical events and i think this is where zelensky is so clever and where in a way he's following the sort of inspiration of churchill in understanding the potency of the moment and gosh this was a hugely potent moment not just because it was a speech in parliament but i mean that speech was addressed to a completely european if not a global audience my co-host sir richard dearlove there talking to us from the western united states this week We thought we would reach out to two journalists this week to discuss how Putin is likely to handle his war turning one year old, an anniversary he never wanted to mark. I'm delighted to have with us today uh, two expert journalists joining us um, to discuss the upcoming one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion into Ukraine. We have Jackie Heinrich, who is White House correspondent for Fox. She's joining us from Washington, D.C. And from Riga, we have Max Seddon. He is the Russia bureau chief for the Financial Times. Max, I'm going to start with you and the view from Moscow. Now that we are coming up to the one-year anniversary of Putin's three-day war. And it's a war that many of us did not see coming, even though the troop buildup of uh, on the border really started ramping up in the autumn of 2021. So, Max, I want to talk to you about how that initial justification for launching this invasion has aged since then. We've seen how after blowing a lot of hot air about Finland and Sweden possibly joining NATO. And then after they actually declared that they wanted to join the alliance, Putin said that their membership was actually not really uh, of any concern for Russia. Um, It wasn't something that bothered him. I mean, he did say it was because there are no territorial disputes with them like there is in Ukraine. But that makes it more to do with Ukraine itself, right? And not NATO so-called expansionism. Well, I think you could argue that the goal, there's only ever really been one goal in, in Ukraine, and that has been to, to for, for Russia, and that's been to destroy the uh, Ukrainian state and Ukrainian nation as, as they as they currently exist. If you uh, watch, uh, you know, the pretty bloodthirsty speeches that Putin made uh, almost a year ago, when, you know, for first as long historical rent and then the actual uh, explanation of the order to begin the invasion, it's very clear that he seems almost kind of personally affronted by its existence. And uh, one thing that he had to drop quite quickly, but it's interesting, if you remember from the early days of the war, uh, including in that in that first speech, there was an appeal to the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, don't risk your lives trying to prop up the American neo-Nazi regime of, of, of Zelensky and Kiev, lay down your arms and uh, surrender to Russia and you will be unharmed. And it shows you just just the absolutely delusional, completely disconnected from reality perspective that Putin had, because he he really did think it was going to be a, wa- a walk in the park, That in especially in eastern and southern Ukraine, where th- there's never really been any explanation for, for what this means. I can tell you, uh, we, we are on a uh, phone call every day with uh, Dmitry Peskov, uh, Putin's spokesman, uh, with, with the Kremlin pool and, and some foreign reporters. And, and just recently, he was asked, you know, can you explain like, what what are the goals? Like what, what this this keeps going on. There hasn't been much of an explanation. You know, the foreign minister Sergey Lavrov he said that the war had to keep going on because 
of all the increasingly long-range weaponry that Western countries are are giving Ukraine. And the the longer the weapons, the farther they want to move them uh, away from Russia's borders. So really, it's it's sort of everything and nothing. But uh, I, the, the one thing that Putin's been very clear about is that he doesn't think that Ukraine's existence in this current form is acceptable to Russia, and he's not going to stop until that is resolved to his liking in some way. You say that the the Kremlin, they have struggled to sort of articulate what the goals are to the Russian people. I mean, do they need to bring the Russian people with them? I mean, there are some estimates that the Russians have lost over 150,000 soldiers uh, in, the, in the last 12 months of this war. They've lost 1,700 tanks. They have depleted huge proportion of the stocks of their, of their military hardware, of their weapons, of their missiles. This has come at a huge cost to Putin. Does he need the public with him? I think I think absolutely. You know, he he does, and yeah, that's what that's why. I remember, in in Russia, officially, it's not called a war or or an invasion. Uh, you you can theoretically go go to prison for for saying that in in public in Russia. It's called a special military operation, and uh, part of the reason why uh, it's it's called that is because it uh, you, you know to most people it sounds like something that's happening off in some far flung locale where you're sending in the the super commandos in Syria or Central African Republic or, or Libya or somewhere somewhere like that. It doesn't sound like the, the sort of big, big total war in, in which um, uh, your brothers and your husbands and your sons might be dying. And uh, they were, were quite successful for the first six months or so of the war in maintaining that, that fiction with, with the majority of people. One thing that was really striking being, being back in Russia in, in September was the extent to which for you know, so many people life was really going on as, as before. The, the problem was that you know, even though most people had uh, learned largely to tune the war out, uh, since, since it's been going so badly for Russia, that has required Putin to raise the stakes. And uh, the most dramatic thing he's done for that is uh, mobilizing uh, Russia's reserves, which is the first time that's been done since uh, the Second World War. And this this is a parallel that the Russian propaganda and Putin personally have uh, not, not been shy in, in evoking, because the way that they have been portraying this conflict is it's uh, some some sort of um, defensive invasion. The, the U.S. would have used Ukraine to to attack Russia somehow if uh, Russia hadn't acted acted first, is, is one of Putin's mantras about this. And since it's uh, much more difficult now, after you've had one wave mobilization, there are lots of rumors that, that there may be more or, or that they may uh, declare a full-blown war, which also has uh, various economic consequences that would uh, affect quite a lot of people because they'd be able to seize uh, economic production and uh, engage people in the economic war effort as well. I mean, can you see any of those things happening for the anniversary? Well, it's possible. One thing uh, that appears might finally be happening is Putin didn't make his State of the Union address last year, which he's, re- he's required to do uh, at any point of his choosing in the calendar year by the Constitution. And uh, they they just basically ignored this. Uh, and it looks like it's going to happen uh, a few days before, before the invasion. Some state media has been giving 
potential days for the 20th, 21st of, of February. And uh, this this would be the, the forum where you know, Putin could do uh, a number of things. He could uh, use it as a way to ramp up the rhetoric and uh, really you know, try to drag the whole population into the war effort. He could he could make it more about about the supposed social aspects of why of why they're fighting these uh, uh, parts of four regions of Ukraine, which which Russia is is attempting uh, with with mixed success to, to annex. About all of the money and and the and the assistance is going going to be given to people living there who who Russia has now decided are are Russians. Max, I heard you recently um, talking with your colleague uh, Gideon Rackman. You mentioned that someone had said to you, Putin's a gambler and he's going to stay in the casino. He's already lost. Everyone except him knows that he's already lost. But he's putting everything he has on this losing bet until someone drags him out. I mean, obviously, the Russians have lost so much from this war. The army uh, has been seriously depleted. Their economy uh, is really struggling. They're running out of a lot of supplies. I mean, there are they, the Russians can always gain ground. Things can change on the battlefield. But if things continue to do badly, and if, as you point out, that you know Putin hasn't had a lot of positive things to say uh, regarding the operation, and perhaps that may be one reason why he's postponed a lot of these important press conferences and his State of the Union, what, how long do you think this can continue to go badly for Putin? I think I think it can go badly from quite some time because you look at the at the battlefield at the moment they they suffered a couple of pretty humiliating defeats uh, last last fall they were routed in in Kharkov Oblast in uh, eastern Ukraine and then southern Ukraine they had to withdraw from Kherson which was the only regional capital they they'd captured during the entire invasion but since then uh, by bolstering the front lines with all these men they've called up hundreds of thousands of people. They have largely managed to ebb the tide a bit. They they even they they captured this town Solidar, first town they they captured in in uh, something like six months. They captured in January, and as as long as as things are in this this state, or or even if they're you know just just gradually getting worse, I think he's pretty secure because you know you are. Uh, not not seeing, despite some, I think I think pretty misplaced hopes in the West uh, when when the first sanctions came in at the beginning of the war that there be some sort of elite pushback. This this is not happening because Putin still you know very much controls the the security apparatus and uh, there there really isn't any kind of constituency among uh, you know, oligarchs people in the government. Uh, to to end this war, you know that that said, the vast majority of them you know, would would very much like this to to end as as soon as possible, but they're not not really doing anything about it uh, to to try to make that happen. It's it's very rare that even among the most liberal of his confidants who who uh, I can can explain to to him. Uh, you know how how disastrous this has been for Russia's Russia's economy. Uh, they're they're too scared to really tell him that, and even the, on the rare occasions when they have, he's not really listening anyway because he's just so consumed by the the security environment that 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 he perceives. So I think, barring a really utter disaster, which would mean I think you'd have to get to the point where Ukraine would be would be on Russia's borders and uh, potentially at least I think uh, being in a position to retake Crimea. I think uh, he. He's going to be absolutely solid there. I mean, there wasn't that much uh, 
uh, active dissent against the war. What was was uh, was quashed pretty pretty effectively. One thing that I have been struck by in in recent weeks and months is what a lot of the Russian commentariat have been saying about how the war has been progressing, and um, in particular this very colourful fellow, uh, Vladimir. Solovyov, um, who I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, his mood has been significantly deteriorating in uh, in recent weeks. He aired this long rant recently where he savaged the Russian military leadership for how they've handled the war so far, uh, in particular their so-called red lines following Ukrainian strikes inside Russian territories uh, and that strike on the Russian military barracks that killed scores of soldiers. And he argued that the West is now fully engaged in this war against Russia. And he asked why Western nations have not yet been targeted. He argued that NATO has got more than three times the amount of conventional arms that Russia has. And so therefore, it's long time that Russia's nuclear warheads were pointed towards European capitals, Berlin, Paris, London, Washington also, uh, and that their nuclear warheads be put on high alert. So I mean, all, all very sort of feisty stuff. I mean, Max, these, these military bloggers, these hosts, media personalities in Russia, uh, I mean, this guy in particular, he seems to present himself as a kind of Russian Alex Jones. I mean, a lot of them are extremely volcanic and extreme in what they're saying and in their calls for escalation. But how influential are they? What sort of, what constituency do they represent? And is it one that Putin is sort of heeding? Is he paying attention to what, what they say at all? I think I think you've got to draw a line here between uh, someone like Vladimir Solovyov, who's uh, the absolute number one propagandist on state TV. He's uh, you know he may, he may froth at the mouth like Alex Jones, but he's much more like Tucker Carlson or or, or Sean or Sean Hannity. And you know, he's he's been doing this for for decades. You can go back to to the '90s and you can find clips of uh, him uh, speaking uh, very eloquently and passionately in favor of uh, liberal democracy and uh, democratic values. Uh, so he's he's obviously. He's come quite a lot of ways, uh, quite a long way since then. You know, he wasn't wearing his kind of Mao military tunics that he wears all the time now. But but the people like that, the the, the these are you know, even if they might have you know started drinking the Kool Aid and uh, they start start believing what what they say. You know, these these are very much people who are who are told to influence public opinion. That that is their job. And I think um, one one mis misperception um, that the, that a lot of people have in the West. You know, you you experience. Uh, Russian TV through these clips of people you know, doing doing crazy stuff on 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 Twitter, and uh, you're you're shocked by that. That's not the way that most Russian people experience propaganda. The, the, this is um, these the shows are on for you know eight hours a day now, and they you know, they spend eight years on on these shows you know, hype, you know hyping it up. It's like somewhere halfway between uh, I don't know sort of your kind of news talk broadcast and Jerry Springer. It's it's really there to be background noise because you know most most people are not you know still still actively engaged engaged in the war. It just sort of uh, if uh, you know your your grandma you know she has it on and can vaguely hear it from from the next room while she's in the kitchen frying mushrooms. And there have been studies on this. Even people who don't watch TV, when when enough of these you know buzzwords like Ukrainian Nazis are repeated enough, uh, that a lot of ordinary people will will unconsciously start start picking them up. This is quite different from the military bloggers who are uh, also you know we we shouldn't 
uh, um, um, there's no real, real illusion. This isn't also you know, completely officially sanctioned, but but these guys, you know, some some of whom are uh, actually their sort of you know, war reporters who are embedded with the Russian army or some of the irregular Rus- Russian forces fighting in eastern Ukraine. This this is all completely officially sanctioned, but uh, this this is the closest thing from from the Russian side you can get to to an account of the war. This was you know when when the war started going badly, you know they uh, um, a lot of them were talking pretty openly about it. And one one thing that Putin likes to do is uh, speak to people, so to speak, on the ground. And he invited these guys for a few meetings. And uh, he he started hearing a lot of this this criticism, this you know, very uh, far right criticism from from the pro war flank of the military leadership, because these people they don't want the war to end, they want to win the war, and uh, they've they've become quite influential. Uh, you know, I, I think the extent to which they've they've affected Putin personally you know, isn't isn't quite clear because uh, he he hasn't done quite uh, quite a few things that they like, but there are strains of the elite that that share this view, and so something that was very interesting in in September uh, around around the time that he he declared mobilization when they uh, just suffered this absolutely humiliating defeat in in Kharkov Oblast you you had this completely unprecedented and very clearly officially sanctioned because criticism of the of the military leadership for all all the failures in 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 the invasion of Ukraine and uh, there there are some some figures figures in the elite you can talk about you know Yevgeny Prigozhin the guy the guy who runs Wagner the former mercenary group of uh, Palomero militaries has now become this kind of zombie prisoner army of uh, uh, convicts who are released from from prison to to go and go and fight. Uh, um, um, Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, who also runs the you know, enormous paramilitary force, is basically his own kind of personal Praetorian Guard in Chechnya. You have you have the guys who, for the last eight years, were the sort of you know, Russian-backed guys in the Donbas in, in in eastern Ukraine, and they've been pushing for two things, which is uh, you know, changes in the military leadership and for Putin to not give up, you know, to really uh, still try to go go all the way, which which means, you know, never, never giving, um, giving up on the goals and really, uh, you know, Kiev, you know, at the end of the day, really has to be the goal. Jackie, I want to ask you, because the first year of the the war in Ukraine, we've spent a lot of time focusing on the situation on the ground, uh, following in minute detail, the twists and turns of the war and how it's played out, the towns that have been taken, the towns that have been liberated, uh, movement of refugees, and just looking at how the Ukrainians themselves, how much they have been able to muster of their defence and and with the tools that they, they had at the start of the war. I wonder if this year now, because particularly as we are at a bit of a stalemate between both sides, if in this new phase of the war, we will start to be focusing a lot more on what the West decides to do next, particularly in terms of resupplying a lot of uh, the Ukrainian military hardware, a lot of which has has been spent. I mean, we don't know how many jets that they have left. We don't know how many pilots they, they have left. They have been asking the international community uh, to ramp up um, their support. And pretty significantly last year, we had a huge, huge budget passed uh, in December that included hundreds of billions of dollars for the Pentagon and a a pretty significant bump uh, from what Biden was initially asking in order to accommodate uh, defense for, for Ukraine. Yeah, I, I think that there will continue to be strong support for Ukraine aid. Um, 
not only has Congress been willing to pass more than the president has asked for, um, you know, the president's been criticized by members of Congress for not doing enough soon enough. I mean, he's moved beyond self-imposed red lines before on everything from HIMARS to Patriot missiles to M1 Abrams tanks. He just said this week, you know, no F-16s. But everyone in Washington is kind of like, well, when so when do we send them the F-16s? Um, because it just seems that, you know, it's it's been a matter of getting him to do it uh, soon enough, not really getting him to do it at all. Um, I do think that there's a faction of the Republican Party that wants an accounting of the money that has been spent. And these same people are often saying that this funding really should be going toward, you know, our southern border and domestic issues. They're a relatively small faction of, you know, their own party in in Congress. Um, You know, they don't they have numbers, but they I don't think that they are, you know, sort of where the weight is centered. Um, you have enough defense hawks in the Republican Party and you have enough moderates um, in the Republican Party that are, you know, partnering with Democrats vowing to, you know, overcome whatever, um, you know, whatever challenges they have in in getting money appropriated because they understand that this is, you know, the U.S. has to lead this effort um, as we've seen with so many other um, initiatives, you know, a flow of weapons and support coming from other countries after the U.S. leads that charge. So um, I don't think that they're they're going to give up on that effort anytime soon. I think that as you see more uh, candidates jump in the race for 2024, you, there'll probably be more media attention on these voices who say, you know, we've spent all this money on Ukraine and look at the, the southern border. Uh, but I don't think that that's going to uh, to change anything. I do think, though, that it's important to keep uh, Ukraine in the news because I I think that when people see Ukraine winning and success on the battlefield, it's easier to support huge swaths of money going to this effort. I think when people think that they are wasting money on on something that's just going to drag on for years and and we're not you know, giving them enough to win the war, um, things sort of fall apart because it's like, okay, well, why are we pouring all this money into this effort? And and so now you see on both sides, you see people who pushing for us to just give the money and give the weapons that will actually allow this to stop. Um, You know, we've had this whole discussion over sanctions. um, And I think that this was something that the Biden administration misstepped on. Um, They should have imposed sanctions preemptively. I think saying the mere threat of a sanction, uh, you know, would deter Putin. Obviously, that did not happen. And then they have not um, been so effective in a a way that, you know, it's changed our posture at all. Um, I think that we can accept the argument that down the road, uh, things are going to be very difficult for Russia because of these sanctions. But it certainly hasn't changed what we all need to do to support Ukraine in the immediate, um, in the now. 
I mean, I mean, one one voice uh, in the states right now calling for the Americans to give the Ukrainians the tools they need to beat Putin now uh, is our old former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who is speaking at the Atlantic Council. He he spoke for about half an hour on uh, the importance uh, of backing the Ukrainians, and he said something actually that I thought was quite interesting. He very firmly rebuffed uh, questions about nuclear weapons, and he felt very strongly that Putin is not going to use any nuclear weapons, tactical or otherwise. Um, And for the reason that if he were to do so, he would immediately extinguish all the swing voters in the world, as he described it. He would lose China's support in an instant. He would lose India. He would lose a lot of the other countries um, in the global south that are quite ambiguous uh, currently in, in the war with Ukraine. And I think it's interesting and topical at the moment because there has been a bit of a row brewing at the moment on the New START arms treaty, which is that treaty between the US and Russia, uh, which works to limit the number of strategic nuclear weapons that each country can use. And the Russians haven't denied um, that they, uh, they've they been pulling back. The Americans have been claiming that they have refused to allow inspectors into their country uh, in order to inspect their nuclear facilities and storage sites. They've not denied this, but they have claimed that the Americans have made the negotiations and the conditions for the treaty impossible because they've backed Ukraine in the war. And of course, the big concern about this is if, if the treaty is not extended, I believe, in 2026, what we could end up with is is a situation where both the US and Russia have no restrictions on their nuclear arsenals, and that may spark a global arms race. I mean, what are the fears in Washington of that right now? Or do you think that's an issue that's sort of parked at the moment? Well, I think Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson being um, on Capitol Hill, talking to lawmakers also, you know, is is important and, you know, rallying, rallying support. I think that the, the START Treaty and all, all of this with Russia, I mean, how can we <laughs> take seriously anything that Russia says? I mean, they have also accused NATO and the West of leading this war and, and you know, being the aggressor in this situation. I don't think that anyone really uh, takes seriously anything that, that Russia um, is claiming in terms of allegations. I, I also think that um, with the JCPOA and the Iran nuclear deal, um, the U.S. has stopped pursuing this um, because it's just clear that, you know, we cannot take at anyone's word, you know, what's being done or not being done. There, these treaties don't stop actions, really. Um, there has been in, a, you know, a lot of ways sort of a simmering um, arms race anyway, despite all of these treaties. I mean, we, we know that it didn't prevent Iran from you know, getting as far as they've gotten. And we know that, that Russia is going to say whatever they're going to say. And so I, I think that really it's it comes down to how can the U.S. Um, maintain a position to defend uh, democracy around the world and and also uh, it's, itself and its allies if that moment were ever to come. And I think what we're going to be witnessing more of now is how do we get our um, manufacturing in a place where we could, um, if there were a conflict with China, for instance, um, on, in the Taiwan Strait, what would happen? Would we have the weaponry to 
you know, sustain something going on there. I mean, there's been reporting um, that's been sort of flaring up and circulating on the Hill to suggest that we would not have uh, the necessary supply after just a two-week um, incident. So that's sort of resonating here. And um, we're looking at, you know, the Pentagon's taking quite seriously how do you maintain stockpiles and how do you replenish what, what you would need for something in the future. Max, will will 2023 be the year that Putin crosses that nuclear threshold as Vladimir Solovyov is is calling for? Um, or And if he doesn't do that, then what other options does he have? Among, among the people I talk to in and around the Kremlin, uh, opinion, opinion is, is, is divided on this. So one one former senior official said to me that you know Putin's you know the kind of guy who if if he's uh, you know losing you know face, facing checkmate and you know the only alternative is to is to drink hemlock uh, or take a cyanide pill, he might you know instead of ex- accepting defeat on the board, he might just you know throw the board across the room and scatter, scatter all all the pieces everywhere. And uh, there there was a lot more talk about this in Moscow in the fall around the time that he declared mobilization. He started making veiled, veiled nuclear threats in the last couple months, and uh, two two things appear to to have happened. One is uh, we we know that the West did, and uh, we uh, did, did deliver a strong message on the repercussions there be for Putin using a tactical nuclear weapon in 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 Ukraine. I think also that you know if if uh, he he was given a strong message by China and India, especially who have been uh, quite quite neutral on on the war in a way that's been very beneficial to Russia so far and uh, have helped uh, prop up the economy by buying lots of Russia's oil. We don't know what kind of message that uh, they gave gave to Russia, but a strong message from them on the inadmissibility of crossing the nuclear threshold that would have been taken very seriously in the Kremlin. Then there's also, uh, if if you believe some people, there there's the issue that using using a uh, tactical nuclear weapon, these you know, little suitcase nukes on on the battlefield in Ukraine, it doesn't really work because these things are in in terms of the area that that they devastate. It's relatively small, uh, and and uh, you you can do a lot of that with with, with conventional weapons. Indeed, they already have. If you look at uh, Mariupol, a city of almost five hundred thousand people before the war, now it's completely destroyed. Uh, that that would have been, uh, according to one one expert I spoke to, that you would have needed more than one tactical nuclear weapon to, to do that. And that was one of the reasons why Ukraine became much much bolder in the late spring, early summer about trying to retake all of the all of the lost territory because I felt like that they had uh, already taken so much of the wars that Putin could could throw at them. The, the other issue is that if you're doing this on, on the battlefield, either, you know, if you're, you're doing it in Western Ukraine, there's a huge risk of escalation because, you know, some of the radiation might blow over to, to Poland uh, or or you were bombing somewhere that, that you just said was Russia uh, a few a few months ago. You, you've decided that all the people living in some of these frontline areas like like Zaporizhia uh, or, or Hassan are, are, are Russians. And uh, it it doesn't really make much sense. And um, Putin uh, said this uh, in in the uh, end of October, beginning of uh, November, that there was no political or military sense in in using nuclear weapons uh, in in Ukraine. Uh, you know, one, one would hope that the people who, who say that he really believes that are right. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line. Tell us your thoughts. What decisions have impacted you and where you live? 
you can write to us. Our email is onedecision at onedecisionpodcast.com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time.